Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Father John, Joe, well, this is uh, Catholic Stuff You Should Know. Here we are, two days from ordinations. Next right. year, it's going to be you. Next year, it's going to be me. Tomorrow, no, two days, no, three days from ordinations. On Saturday, which, you know, in podcast time, this will be a couple weeks uh, ago, but for us right now, I think it's uh, Saturday the 18th, yep. we're going to be ordaining the Archdiocese of Denver. We'll be ordaining one, two, three, four, five, six men, seven, six, six men to the priesthood. Two of them are Brother John and Brother Paul, though, so they're for a religious community. So four men to the diocese in life. And, uh, six more homeboys. Yeah, it's awesome. It is awesome. It's we're- the best time of seminary. In seminary, I mean, you're you're here all the time. You're working, you're praying, five years go by, six years go by, seven nine years go by. Nine for some of us. Nine for some of us who have a longer track. Yeah. And uh, But then you see guys get ordained at the end of each year, and you just it kind of brings everything back into perspective. And it's like, wow, this is what I'm doing with my life, and this is why I'm here. And it's just such a joyful time. And you see yeah, these is. guys who have given you know, a large minority of their life to the seminary in preparation. A large uh, minority. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to seminary preparation, or pre- preparation of the priesthood, and then you see them get ordained and go out. It's just really awesome. So yeah. excited for uh, Scott Bailey, Ron Catani, and the other Redemptorist Mato guys whose names I can't nice, remember. Nice touch. Yeah, thanks. No, we are uh, we are excited for those guys, and it's uh, but we're really excited for next year when Deacon Joe and Deacon Nathan are let loose in the Catholic Church. That's right. God save her. Watch so out. We're excited, though. Mm-hmm. So have you been listening to the news lately? Uh, not really. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in the news. Again, this is like two weeks ago podcast time for you, but uh, at least this week in the news, we have this situation in Philadelphia with this um, abortion doctor. Okay. Do you hear about this? No. Oh, crazy. It hasn't been in the news until he got convicted on Monday um, of, I think, three counts of first-degree murder. This guy had was running an abortion clinic, kind of off the off record, and uh, had like you know would kill babies after uh, who were born alive, and oh then manslaughter for a woman who died in this clinic because of uh, the dosages they were giving her and messed stuff up. So just really messy stuff. So there's this guy, and he was going to face the death penalty, but now it's off the table. Um, and then you have you know the Boston bombings a few weeks ago. Uh, then you have this guy in. Cleveland, have you heard about this guy with the? He had three girls that he kidnapped. Oh gosh, yeah, it's just crazy, it's just really horrible stuff. Um, but the death penalty has been in the news a lot lately. Okay, and so I thought it'd be cool to do a uh, a podcast just about capital punishment and the tradition of the church. Nice. And what does the church teach about it? You know, because um, the catechism is pretty explicit now. If you read uh, a 1997 edition of the catechism, which is the most recent edition, um, you will hear, you will read in that in number 2267 that basically. Uh, the capital punishment and the death penalty shouldn't be used uh, except for kind of extreme circumstances. And these are the circumstances. It says this, assuming that the guilty party's identity and responsibility have been fully determined. Uh, so assuming that this guy is has done what he is convicted for. Right. Uh, the church does not exclude recourse to the death penalty if, so the death penalty can only be used if, this is the only possible way of effectively defending human lives against the unjust aggressor. So basically, the death penalty should only be used, according to the Catechism in 97, in cases where there's no other way of protecting society from this person's... All right, hold on, hold on. Let me get another slug of coffee. We're, we are jumping. Does that make any sense? Yes, yeah, so... Basically, the consequence of... This is what it says later in the paragraph. The consequence of the possibilities which the state has for effectively preventing crime um, by rendering one who has committed an offense incapable of doing harm. So the only way it's justified... To kill somebody for their offenses is 
if there is no way of protecting society from them. Exactly. Similar to how uh, in, you know, killing a person in cases of self-defense is lawful, is illicit because you're not, your intention isn't to kill them. Your intention is to protect them from hurting innocents. If somebody comes in your house with a gun uh, and so they're applying that idea of self-defense, which has been used in the tradition to justify killing in self-defense all the way back to St. Thomas and the Council of Trent. They're applying that now to the death penalty that, um, and, and John Paul II says from Evangelium Vitae, basically that this is the only reason why uh, the death penalty would be lawful um, by in order to the, be the only possible way of effectively defending human lives against him. And he basically says um, the cases in which the execution of the offender is an absolute necessity are very rare, if not practically existent. I was going to say. So in his mind, he says this is only for like places in the bush where you have somebody who's a murderer and you can't detain him. You can't protect society. And the only way to stop him from murdering people is to execute him as opposed to putting him in a federal prison for the rest of his life. So, I mean, is there any justification for this in, in, in modern United States? Yeah, I think I think John Paul II, if, you're, if you read the catechism at face value, it seems like there's really not. Yeah. Uh, the only possible, I mean, I think you can make an argument for somebody, and this isn't in the United States, but somebody like Saddam Hussein, who, even if he's in prison, can still Creative. create because of his very, because of his life and the motivation, the people, the powers he has outside of the prison system. Uh, it might be impossible to protect society from him, even if he's in prison. So a case could be made, I think, for him. But in the United States, it's hard for me to imagine. So somebody like Kermit Gosnell, this doctor yeah. in Philadelphia, who did these horrific crimes, um, or somebody like um, Timothy McVeigh right, right. Uh, with the Oklahoma City bombings, and right. he was executed on television. Um, it would be hard to justify that uh, following what the Catechism right. says. So the, um, the church's teaching on capital punishment is rooted in this kind of moral principle of self-defense. Right. Is that basically it? Well, this is, this is where it gets sticky. Um, that is what the – if you read in the Catechism, that is what the Catechism says. But – if you look at back into the tradition of the church and how the church has spoken about the death penalty, it's very different. Huh. Uh, and there's so people have said the church is used to say the death penalty was okay, and now it doesn't because our prison systems, at least in first world countries, are sufficient to protect society. And so that's the main thing that's changed. We've become more advanced as a society. Our prison systems are more secure. Right. So that's why that's the thing that's changed in the teaching of the church. And that's kind of true, but it's also kind of not because there's a different framework at work now. The framework that we're talking about is self-defense. And it even quotes St. Thomas Aquinas uh, when he's talking about killing. And he said, quoting him saying, the act of self-defense can have a double effect. And this is where he brings in the whole principle of double effect. Uh, The preservation of one's life and the killing of the aggressor. So when I shoot someone breaking into my house to kill my children, uh, there's two effects of my action. I'm I'm killing him and I'm also preventing, Preventing. preserving my family's lives. Uh, So the one is intended to preserve my family's life. The other is not. I don't really want to kill him, but I'm, I want to protect my family's life. And so that's the unintended effect of my action. Gotcha. So does that make any sense? Yes, this yes, is yes. the basic principle of double effect. That's from Aquinas. The catechism now is applying that to capital punishment as a society as a whole. But what's interesting is that Aquinas also talks about directly about capital punishment. And he says it's totally justified, not just about self-defense, but he has another framework in which she puts it, which is this idea of retributive justice or like punishment. Right. That there is a grave crime and uh, civil authorities have a duty to punish grave crimes uh, up to and including even the death penalty uh, if in, in cases of extreme gravity. 
Whoa. Which is what the 1992 Catechism actually said. So when they had the new Catechism come out five years later, this is one of the few things that they changed. Whoa. Uh, and the old Catechism talked about the death penalty being justified not just for self-defense, but also for, as it says in 92, um, to punish malefactors by means of penalties commensurate with the gravity of the crime. Hmm. So you've done something so bad. Uh, and it says, you know, not excluding in cases of extreme gravity, the death penalty. So if you've done so something so horrible. So basically, oh, that's, that's really crazy. So the, the government has a responsibility to execute judgment. Mm-hmm. And it, the death penalty is the, the only just action for certain really disturbing and, and horrible crimes. Right, exactly. If you look at St. Thomas Aquinas's treatment of the death penalty, and even the Council of Trent would say the same thing. Aquinas uses this image of uh, the moral disorder in society. So it's not just about self-defense. It's about a disorder that needs to be redressed. And he uses the analogy of if a limb is gangrene, you have to cut it off. Yeah. And in the same way that if somebody in society is so depraved, uh, it has to be because of justice has to be cut off. And this was like the mantra for proponents of the death penalty for like 800 years. Right. And then now the new catechism uses the same question of Thomas Aquinas, a different article to say that the death penalty can only be used in cases of just uh, self-defense, which is not really what Thomas says and which is not really what the council of Trent says. So it's kind of a sticky thing because the catechism says the traditional teaching of the church is that, you know, you can't right. use death penalty except in cases of self-defense. But that's just not true. Okay, so for the Catholic who's listening to this who's now like, what the heck? The exactly. The, the catechism's just, changed. The church just, like, makes up and just changes. Are we Mormons? Like, mm. we just kind of change our teachings as we go? Like, Right, exactly. So and could it, you explain? It's kind of, and it's, it's an interesting question because this is something where a lot of people who are very Catholic, very faithful to the church, uh, are also have a hard time seeing why the death penalty isn't lawful in a place like the United States. They're supportive of that here. Um, and so it's kind of, how does that work? The, the basic line is that the magisterium of the church, which puts out the catechism of the Catholic church, uh, is, is pretty clear now about what is justified and what's not. How does that happen? How does the church's teaching kind of change? Um, and you could say two things. You could say either this is a, this is a change in teaching completely. This is clearly discontinuous with what was in the past. We've just had one thing. We've changed it. Or is it a is it a true development of doctrine? Right. And development of doctrine is something that we haven't. I don't think we've done a podcast. No, but we've talked about it. It would be yeah. a good one to do. But how does doctrine develop? Um, and that's really the question. And I would argue that this is something. This is this is in continuity with the teaching before because in um, in the old teachings about from Council of Trent from Saint Thomas Aquinas, it did have this idea of retributive justice, but it also included this idea of self defense. They were kind of both together. Right. And the church has seemed to kind of let the idea of uh, retributive justice, including, I mean, there's still an idea of punishment that should fit the crime, but it seems to want to shy away now from this, even including the death penalty. And it says because of the dignity of the human person, defending lives against the unjust aggressor. Uh, so basically if you don't, uh, if you don't execute someone, you respect their dignity in the sense of you give them a chance to repent. Right. Uh, but that doesn't always happen. And, and is justice really served? Well, the people aren't uh, people aren't in danger from this man anymore. But I don't know what would you say to that. How would you how would you explain that change or the development? Well, it's interesting. I, I think that the um, the we are seeing a development of doctrine. So there, first off, there's no contradiction. You know, yeah. it's just a more refined. I think you're right to say the medieval kind of treatment of it had these two kind of theological um, ways of approaching it, 
and now one is kind of more completely coming to the fore. I, with the development of doctrine, though, is interesting because it's not just um, it's not just like the church is like guys, are, you know, fat celibate guys are sitting in the Vatican blood and like, well, what should we make up this year? Like what you know? It, right. It, but when it develops historically, it develops because of history. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The definition of doctrine and the clarification only comes in response to some kind of moral failure, heresy. Right. That's the only time that the things are more completely defined. So if we want to understand why is the church more more perfectly clarifying this teaching in this moment, why are we seeing a development of doctrine, then we have to say what are the historical and cultural uh, effects and realities that are um, demanding this clarification. Mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing that with in the medi- in the medieval world you had a recognition of the dignity of the person that just flourished in society you had a kind of a, a sense of the common good and that has completely collapsed that has right. completely fallen apart and so it's almost like the church what's demanded of her is that she uh, articulate more completely the notion of self-defense because the primacy of of the person's dignity has been so absolutely destroyed Hmm. And that we're incapable of understanding it according to that medieval context. That'd be what I would say, not to make it arbitrary according to historical change. But I do think that it it does condition development of doctrine. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the role of government in the Middle Ages has changed a lot, especially just because of the separation of church and state that we live in today. Uh, There's just a very different understanding of what the role of government was and the role of the church in that. Um, But, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting, too, that in the Middle Ages... They would see the death penalty as actually respecting the dignity of the of the of the criminal, right? Because basically, they're saying you did this crime, and we're taking your actions seriously. Yeah. And your dignity demands that your crime be punished. Yeah. Uh, in a way, commensurate with the crime and the gravity of the crime. And it's amazing to think that, like, when Thomas is writing this, there's no standing armies in Europe. Hmm. There's no police force. Police force didn't exist. Right? It was the bobbies in the you know 17th century, whatever, in England. You know, the guys with the tall hats. Right. Right. Yeah. That was that was the original kind of police force. So this notion of kind of the modern police state hmm. um, and the modern kind of jail system, which we think is kind of more, we, we kind of think it's more advanced. Like, oh, we we've got them under control now. Well, well, there was a, just a different approach to crime because hmm. not there's always been evil and there's always been sin, but like uh, our our world is just collapsing, and so we're entrusting it more to government and police forces and we're kind of moving more and more towards that and it's a it's a grave responsibility for the civil authorities to to get this right i guess and one of the even practically the i think the best arguments against the death penalty is what we know now from dna testing and being able to investigate with dna evidence um i I don't have the numbers in front of me but it was just such a it was striking how large the number of um people who have been executed after the fact, we were able to do DNA testing and find out actually they weren't guilty of this crime. Oh wow! Uh, and it wasn't like most of them or anything like that, but it was a pretty significant minority. I can't remember how, the number, um, but that that enough was just like it is. It's a. I mean, there. I think I'm. I'm hope that the civil authorities would do execute someone in good faith, you know, not knowing them to be innocent, but still to to put to death an innocent man um, for a crime he did not commit is just such a grave, not a moral evil if they're not culpable for it but a grave evil in the sense of uh, a real loss of a good, um, a travesty, a real tragedy, you know? So I, that enough, I mean, if we have a way of just ensuring that we're not going to kill any innocent people 
and we're also going to protect society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who knows, maybe even this guilty man, he might be in jail for the rest of his life, but maybe his he can experience real repentance and real forgiveness. And there's tr- freedom doesn't come from having somebody executed. Safety can come from that. Yes. But freedom comes from forgiveness, which is a lot. I mean, it's really hard for somebody who's experiencing the death of a lost, uh, a loved one because of a, a murderer, you know, absolutely to accept. But then that's where, that's where true freedom is. And I think that's why this is a, this, it, there, a strong case can be made for a, this is a adequate development of doctrine because it's very in line with this, the rest of the gospel message that we have a, a duty pres- to preserve the life of the innocent, but we're also working for the salvation of all souls. Even this man who is our enemy. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for so, sure. Anyway, that's really all I got. Capital Very- punishment. So, uh, but I, I, in the end, this is what the church. We just talked about obedience last week. Yep. In the end, this is what the majesty of the church teaches now. Uh, that you know, it can only be justified in the case where you have no other way of protecting society from this man's aggression. Well, this is very good. As you can tell with Joe's topics, he um, is still a student, so he <laughs> just took a final on this. Um, Questions, comments, concerns, fears, anxieties, uh, Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com on Facebook. We got a couple of comments we got to catch up on. Sorry for the emails I haven't responded to. <laughs> and I think that's about it. That's it. All right. Have All a right, good uh, have a good week. Okay, bye-bye.